Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's do it. Let's jump into the Word of God for today. Um, If you're new here, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors. And... uh, I have the privilege of walking through the scripture this morning. So the vision of our church is a very simple vision. We're responding to God and the gospel through living lives, being faithfully present to God, to ourselves, to one another. We're responding to God and the gospel. So we're gonna hear a bit more about that in, in the sermon today. Uh, and as I mentioned a moment ago, we're, uh, we're walking through a, a short window of starting this year off, just refining Redemption Church. And what that means is about every 18 to 24 months, we have to essentially replant the church uh, and refine the church and re, you know, focus ourselves because of the nature of our very transient city and people are coming and going constantly. And so part of what we have to do every 18 to 24 months is go, okay, who's here? <laughs> and relay the foundation and return to what we are about. And so during this round of refining our church, we're looking at what God was doing with the early Christians in the Jerusalem church at Pentecost. So um, the current challenges, though, that we're facing, and, and as you know, uh, our new, we have new questions every few days, it feels like, as we're Christians living in what's now uh, very much so a post-Christendom society. You know, in Christendom, what I grew up under, what, all, what many of us grew up under, has completely vanished. Maybe you've noticed. And certainly, we notice all the time in Seattle. Um, but in Christendom, things like God, morality, objective truth, afterlife, forgiveness, these were things that were just kind of in the fabric of North American kind of Western culture as a whole, whether, whether people went to church all the time or not wasn't the, wasn't the big idea, but it wasn't uncommon to find people show up at Christmas or Easter at a wedding and do so in a church. Well, now all those things have kind of vanished. And so you don't start with, oh, you believe in God? Well, let me tell you how you can get to know him through the Lord Jesus and all that. Oftentimes we don't actually end up, we don't get to do that because so much that used to be assumed no longer is assumed. And uh, I get questions about this, and I've gotten a lot of questions about this as of late. Like, well, how do you, uh, how do you respond now? Now what do we do? Well, first, we should just kind of ask, ask the obvious question. How are we doing as a society? <laughs> like, how are we doing? You know, I mean... In the name of, you know, your truth and my truth and truth is relative and ultimately kind of unknowable anyway and we're all just kind of wandering the world, um, making it up as we go. Um, how are we doing? Are we becoming like less racist, less violent, more tolerant, willing to sit down and dialogue? How are we doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> Not great. Okay. Okay. And then there's this other thing. How do we move forward? How how do we move forward, especially as followers of Jesus? 
Well, the answer is not going to be in like technology, innovation, or a charismatic leader, person of power. That's not going to be the answer. The answer is still the same. The answer is to boast in our weakness. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses writes where God's talking to the, the, the people of Israel. And he says, you know why I picked you? I didn't pick you because you were great, noble, mighty, and super impressive in the world. In fact, you were so small, so insignificant, so easily overlooked, I just had to have you. I, God always pulls for the underdogs. Just look at the apostles. Look at those guys. They were not the most noble, mighty. In fact, that's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, right? Not many of you were people of power and of noble birth and all this. I don't know. God chooses the weak things of the world. And so how do we move forward in post-Christendom as Christians? Well, we don't need to go for a power grab. We need to just go, you know what? I'm just going to boast in my weakness. I've identified with Jesus and his blessed church. I'm going to boast in my weakness, which means to highlight the thing I'm not good at. <laughs> and I'm going to plant there because it's in planting our feet in our own weakness that God's strength is demonstrated. So that's one. The other thing is God has equipped you with your own memory. There's hardly anything more powerful in you than your memory. Here's what I mean. In the bleak days that it looks like we're walking into, and as it just gets darker and darker as a society, use your memory, will you? Where were you the night before Jesus found you? Who were you? Where were you 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, yesterday? What has he brought you through? Use your memory. It is there that the Holy Spirit takes what God's faithfulness of the past and says, I got you right here in the present and I'm gonna be with you. You are not insane for bankrolling everything on me. Remember when you were down and out here? Remember where you were in high school? Remember where you were through college? Remember where you, remember where you were? And those bleak moments that you looked like you weren't gonna get through it at all? Look where you are now. Look where you are now. I was faithful through the whole thing. So for me as a pastor right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm going back to April 11th, 1996 when I met Jesus. That's where I'm going. I'm going back to being the, honestly the worst student in the history of all high schoolers. And going, how did I get through all that school for the last 20 years? Why did I show up for so much punishment? God's faithful. God's been faithful to keep my marriage together. God's been faithful to keep me together in a world that makes me feel insane. Yeah? That's what we're going to do as a whole body. We're going to just remember and we're going to share our stories together. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Your story really, really, really really matters it's so powerful so that's what we look back in order to go forward and because Jesus is the alpha and the omega we can handle all the letters in the alphabet 
in the in-between, yeah? Okay, so we lean into the Holy Spirit and we open up God's word and we go about answering the questions of our culture with the hope rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So, in responding to God in the gospel, it was about 15, I, all the, I don't know how many years ago now, we'll say 15 years ago, uh, Jana and I were on a, on a vacation and um, met a couple, and they were really just fantastic people. And I had heard of Brennan Manning and the Ragamuffin Gospel. I'd heard of that book before, uh, but I'd never read it. And um, one of them ended up sending me a copy uh, of it, and um, it deeply changed my life. And um, Brennan describes what happens when Jesus moves into someone's life. Let's look at this. In 1982, when I moved from Clearwater, Florida, this was when Brennan, if you don't know Brennan's story, Brennan was an alcoholic and was in um, rehab. So he was in Clearwater, and then he moved to New Orleans after he was on his feet again, yeah? And he was actually working on shrimp boats down on, in the bayou. It was pretty good. awesome. Okay. In 1982, when I moved from Clearwater, Florida to New Orleans, or as us Southerners might say, Nolans. All right. Um, I did some homework on the origins of the Christian faith in the area, and sifting through the archives, I came across a fascinating piece of information. Over 100 years ago in the Deep South, a phrase so common in our Christian culture today, born again, was seldom or never used. Rather, the phrase used to describe the breakthrough into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was, I was seized by the power of a great affection. <laughs> These words described both the initiative of God and the explosion within the heart when Jesus, instead of being a face on a holy card with long hair and a robe with many folds, became real, alive, and Lord of one's personal and professional life, seized by the power of a great affection, was a visceral description of the phenomenon of Pentecost, authentic conversion, and the release of the Holy Spirit. The phrase lent new meaning to the old Russian proverb, those who have the disease called Jesus will never be cured. <laughs> I love this. I, I absolutely love seized by the power of a great affection. That's what was going on at Pentecost. Have you been seized by a power of a great affection in Jesus? Are you incurable? <laughs> I can't get over him. Yeah, life is hard. I'm going through some stuff, sure. But I can't get my eyes off him. I can't get him off my mind. I can't shake him off my hand. He's just there. He's the reason why I get up every day. He's the first thought on my mind. He's there with me at my desk. He's there with me in my car. He's there with me when I'm riding the train. He's there with me when I'm walking through the city. He's with me when I'm laying down, when I'm rising up, when I'm eating, when I'm fasting, when I'm drinking, when I'm riding my bike through my neighborhood. Jesus is with me all the time. I've been seized, yeah? That's, that's what happens when Jesus moves in. He's not moved in to just like live down the street around the corner and you tip your hat every once in a while. Uh, Jesus isn't a weekend hobby. 
And he's not available just when convenience or tragedy strikes. Jesus is with us in the mundane, the day by day by day. So this is the good news for you, not just now in this hour, but tomorrow morning, like Monday, when you have to answer the question, am I a Christian for real? (laughs) Yes, you are. And you've been seized by the power of a great affection. Oh, that's so good. So... That's what was going on in the early church. They were responding. In fact, let's pull this up real quick, Mark. If you read in Acts chapter two, this map is not in Acts chapter two, but um, this, when, they, when Luke's telling, who was at this feast called Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit came down. These were faithful Jews that had traveled from all over to be together at this festival where the Holy Spirit fell. Iranians, Iraqis, Syrians, Italians, Egyptians, Greeks, Saudis. I mean, just everywhere from all over the empire, they had come together, the multi-ethnic family of God. Of course, that's where the Holy Spirit came. The multi-ethnic family of God. What a gift. So that's where Pentecost was happening. They were seized by the power of a great affection. And so here's what Luke writes. As they were together, they devoted themselves to a few things. And it says this, and all who believed were together. So these thousands and thousands of people that had traveled the empire, they'd come together and it says all who believed were together. So it wasn't their sociopolitical alignment that brought them together or their financial status. It wasn't their ethnicities. It wasn't their language, their hobbies, jobs, or common interests. No, what what brought them together was the belief. All who believed came together. It was their belief that 50 days earlier, Jesus Christ had been crucified, buried, and was resurrected from the grave, and they had all bankrolled everything on Jesus. They overlooked everything that the world sets up to divide us, and they said, we're believing, we're coming together, rooted, not in the apostle Peter. We're gathering around the person and the work of Jesus, and because we have placed our faith in him, that's why we are together. And that's what every church has done for thousands of years. The church gathers exclusively around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is what the church does. It's not a country club. It's not a place for like religious bored people to hang out on the weekend. No, 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 no. We've come together as the body of Christ gathered around the person and the work of Jesus. We've placed our faith in him. And so let that sink in. What if the church was known more for what unites us than what divides us? 
Like within church, we're going to obviously, we don't all agree on all kinds of things, whether it's politics or minor issues and something in doctrine somewhere. We go, well, I think it might be this way. Or I, think, I think this is what the, sure. But what if the church was actually just known for, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Wow. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was died, buried, and was raised on the third day. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church of faith. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in just the whole creed, the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. What if that if we really got serious about that, what could stop us, really? Nothing stopped them. They took the gospel throughout the entire <laughs> empire. And by the year 325, there were millions of Christians all of a sudden, from 120 to millions. And it wasn't because they all decided, ah, we all voted for so-and-so. <laughs> no, their, their faith was in the resurrected Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Hmm. And so they were bound together over their faith in Jesus, the Savior. And so this is why or how we're going about refining ourselves in light of the early church's example. And here's what I want to hone in on for just a moment. And they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to the poor as any had need. Hmm. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and giving to everyone around in need. Hmm. Here's what we don't see the Apostle Peter standing up and saying. All Christians must live in a commune. <laughs> As fun as that might sound to some of you, maybe. You don't hear them saying, if you don't sell everything and give it to the church, you're not a real Christian. You don't hear that. You don't hear them saying, it's Jesus' cross and his resurrection plus your overwhelming generosity that will secure your salvation. Nope. You don't hear anybody saying anything like that. No, the community was unlike any of the other ascetic, religious, pietistic movements that sequestered themselves off from society and you would have to give up quite literally everything in order to become a member of that religious community. But the church wasn't saying anything like that. So why were they doing this? Like, what happened? They weren't instructed to become this generous. How did they do this? It was a response to God and the gospel. Like these Jews, like we just said a minute ago, they'd come from all over the Roman Empire. Jews that had, listen to how much they had in common. They were Jews who, had, who believed in the one true God of Israel. They believed that he was the creator of heaven and earth. They believed that God rested on the seventh day. They believed in Adam, 
as male and Eve as female were made in the image and likeness of God. They believed that sin entered creation through Adam and Eve's rebellion. They were Jews who believed in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, and King David, and Solomon, and all the prophets. They were Jews who knew that sin could only be atoned for by the shedding of blood. They were Jews who believed that one day God would send the Messiah. And here they were, in real space, in real time, beholding the promise-keeping God. As a result, everything changed. They now completely redefined their wealth. Their wealth was no longer based on what they had earned. Their wealth was now found completely in Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done. It was just a response. Listen to what theologians Ross and Gloria Kistler wrote in their book on the biblical jubilee. Listen to this. Both the gift of the Spirit and the gift of sharing and community are essential and belong together. Spiritual life cannot be genuine without solidarity with all God's people, particularly those in need. You see, this is what the early church was doing. They didn't separate a spiritual life over here and a physical life over there. That's not Christianity, that's dualism. It's at home in Plato and all Greek philosophy and so on. But Christianity doesn't recognize that idea of, oh, I'm spiritual here and my physical life is over here and they don't really, ha- they don't mix much. Nope, nope. <laughs> you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's very much so integrated. So of course, of course. Like it's not a fable. It's the gospel. They'd been changed by this. So the Christians knew that their neighbor could not be overlooked and pushed to the side. Or one of my favorite theologians, he passed away two years ago at age of 88, <laughs> Rene Padilla from Ecuador. This is what he wrote about this passage in Acts and the generosity of the, the saints. Although this passage is descriptive rather than prescriptive, worth noting, it's a description of what happened, it clearly illustrates how the Christian community created by the Spirit affects personal relationships to such an extent that it includes radical change in the economic field, a field in which perhaps more than any other, the authenticity of both our trust in God as the only true sustainer of our lives and our concern for our neighbors, especially the poor and needy, is tested. That's the long way of saying you can't love God and money. (laughs) To quote, you know, Jesus. And here's what's beautiful. The old hymn is true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Strangely dim. I love that, yeah? Things of the earth grow strangely dim. As we look at Jesus, that is exactly what happens. We start to care a little bit less about things that at one time seemed so very important. And the things that we work so hard to attain, all of a sudden we go, it's not really that 
well, not when he's in the room. Things of the earth grow strangely dim. That's what the early church was experiencing. My stuff is just stuff. We've got Jesus and each other. It's just stuff. All that's mine's yours. You can have it. You can have it. What if we were like a you can have it church? <laughs> you can have it. Everything I've got is all a gift anyway, down to the breath in my lungs. You can have it. What a free group of people. I can't think of anything that sounds more free, especially in such a constricted city like ours. Gosh, that sounds like just absolute freedom. You can have it. My wealth and my relationships with Jesus and my friends. You can have it. Lord, you can have it. You can have it all. Take me too. Paul said to the Galatians, this beautiful passage. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Mm. God help us sow. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. I love the, how this ends. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's do good to everyone. But it starts inside the churches where Paul is instructing, going, hey, if there are needs in the body of Christ, our responsibility right here as brothers and sisters is to act like brothers and sisters and to take care of one another's needs. Do good to everyone. But start right there with your common savior in the middle. Do good everywhere you go in the city this week. Be faithfully present in Title I schools. Be faithfully present to the refugees. Be faithfully present to the elderly. Be faithfully present to unhoused neighbors. Yes, let's do those things. But first, if you've got a brother or sister in the faith that's going without, meet their need. Beautiful. You can have it, Lord. And while I don't want to derail the sermon, I'm on point six out of seven, by the way. You're welcome. All right. Uh, I don't want to derail the sermon. This is one thing I do want to say about doing good to the household of faith. Uh, this is the heart behind us saving and planning and praying about uh, getting a church building for us to post up in, you know, seven days a week for offices and for staff and for doing faithful gospel ministry day by day in the city, it's because we want to do good to the household of faith. Okay, point seven. Here you go. Up until now, I've told you about the early community and how they responded to God and the gospel with conviction and faith and generosity. But here's the thing. The church, the church's strength does not come horizontally. It comes down vertically. 
And, and yes, like we, we do look at the saints that have gone before us as tremendous examples, and they inspire us as examples to imitate. You know, uh, Jana was with, you know, Christy and some buddies up in Bellingham the other day and bought me uh, several of these like little wooden icons of saints and they're on my bed table next to me and I'm reading these guys at night and I just pick these little guys up and St. Jude or Athanasius or Polycarp or whatever, just reading these blessed saints and they are so, ah, they're so encouraging. But that's what the saints are for. They encourage. But that's not where we draw our strength from. Like it's not in looking to St. Paul or Augustine or in my case, St. Bevy of Woodstock, Georgia, my mom, uh, as inspiring as all these people are. Our strength, our strength, the source of the church is Jesus Christ himself. And here's the secret behind the generosity of the Jerusalem church that I, I'm utterly convinced they define their wealth relationally because that is precisely what Jesus did. If you go straight to the, finally just get to the gospel, at the cross of Jesus, we find out who the richest person in the world really is. Here's what I mean. Jesus was surrounded by rich people, wealthy people, religious people, very religious people, and only Jesus was praying. With nothing but nails in his hands, stripped naked, Jesus had enough wealth in God and love for people that he was breathing out forgiveness over his own murderers. Father, forgive them. Jesus was so relationally wealthy with his father that the thief next to him could say, would you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus was so relationally wealthy at the moment of what we would define as overwhelming poverty, Jesus is still saying, John, behold your mother. Like taking care of his own mother from his crucifixion. What can't he do? You, what, what I'm trying to say is you can't, you can't bankrupt Jesus. And ironically, they pinned up king of the Jews over his head. And as he triumphed in the resurrection, that's exactly what we got. The king of the Jews, the savior of the world. Jesus was so relationally wealthy that as he was stripped naked, he is still saving the world. That ought to speak. That spoke to the early church, and that's what freed them up to go, you can have it. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. To God be the glory. Maybe that should speak to how, let that challenge us. Go, okay, Lord, what do I need to do, like, financially? What do you want, how do you want me to live in response to the gospel? Or what do you want me to do with my time? Or what have I been gifted? Like, 
what Sam was talking about earlier. I'm gifted to do these few things. What are you gifted to do? Respond to God and the gospel. Move horizontally to meet the needs of your neighbors, to the glory of the king.